Now, the 78th Psalm, if you look at that, I don't know if you dare to turn the page or not, but 72 verses. And, uh, you know, a lot of preachers uh, can take uh, a verse or two and preach for quite a while. And can you imagine what a guy could do with 72 verses? Some of you have got a look on your face like, oh, no, well, uh, just light up a little bit because we're going to cover the whole psalm, but in a very big picture way is the way we're going to look at it. So we're going to start with the uh, first 11 verses. That's where we're going to read. But then I want to show you how this kind of sets the stage for all else uh, that is said in the psalm. And we'll just kind of hit some of the high spots and uh, tie into this incredible psalm. Now you notice it's called, under the heading of the 78th psalm, it's called Mashiel of Asaph. Now, Asaph was a musician. He was a Levite, and he was quite a significant musician. If you read the Psalms and then some of the Old Testament uh, times of the king, uh, there you can see that Asaph was a significant uh, contributor in poetry and music and such as that. And where the word says Mashiel of Asaph, it means that it is a psalm or a poem of contemplation. Uh, we're supposed to give thought to it. Obviously, I mean, if that wasn't there, hopefully we'd understand we're supposed to give, give thought to these inspired songs. But it calls attention to the fact that it's meant in a didactic manner, which means we're supposed to learn or it is for the purpose of teaching. And so this is a very, very, in my opinion, a very, very significant, important song. And we're going to look at some of the uh, the big overview and the big picture of this psalm here tonight. If you don't mind standing with me for the reading of the Word, we'll read the first 11 verses. If you need to remain seated, obviously, for physical reasons, that's fine. Not a problem at all. But we'll stand and honor the Word of God. Now, beginning in verse number 1, the psalmist said, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and his wonderful work that he has done. Call attention to that line. His wonderful work that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed the law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, called the wonderful works that He has done in verse 4, and here that they would not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And it might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God, the children of Ephraim. Now, often when you talk about the children of Ephraim, you'll see that it's not necessarily a reference to that particular tribe, but after the division of the nation of Israel, north and south, 
the northern kingdom is often called Ephraim, the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's my opinion that the reference here, the children of Ephraim, has to do with that rebellious kingdom to the north that in the book of First Kings, Second uh, Kings, rather, chapter 17, God took them out of his, out of his sight uh, because of their sin. And so here he is in making a reference to that. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They, what does that mean? Well, they kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law and forgot his work. There's the third mention of the works of God and forgot his work and his wonders that he had showed them. Now, after I pray, I want you to remain standing for just a moment, if you would, please. I'm going to pray. I might habitually say, be seated, but don't. You might habitually sit down. You think that a lot of Baptists do think amen means sit down when you're in a place like this, but it doesn't. So please, let's remain standing. I want you to sing something with me uh, very briefly after I pray. Father, we are very grateful tonight for the privilege to assemble together once again. Oh, God. I pray that we would never take for granted the opportunity to assemble together in the context of a New Testament church and gather around the Word of God, having sung your praises and had our hearts ministered to by song, both by the youth choir and these wonderful specials that we have heard tonight. But, oh God, then to be able to open this book and to uh, consider it together to contemplate upon the truths that are before us and to hear your word preached. We are privileged people. Just to have this book to hold in our hands is an honor and a great privilege. Now I pray by the working of your Holy Spirit that you would make this a profitable, a meaningful, a helpful time. And I pray that you would accomplish all that you mean to accomplish by the preaching of your word in this service tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, many of you know the song, and have sung it many, many times like I have. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. Well, you know the song, probably have sung it for invitations. I remember singing it at youth camp, and that was a long time ago that I was a youth at youth camp. And so this song's been around for a long time, and I want you to follow me till I ask you to stop, and then I'm going to finish the line for our contemplation tonight, all right? So we're going to sing it together. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. Let's just start it. You know the song. Everybody ready now? If you don't sing with me, you'll hear me sing. And our blind piano player said when he heard me sing, he wished he was deaf as well. So it'd be a good thing for everybody to sing together, all right? All right, let's everybody sing it right now. Ready? I have decided to follow Jesus. Churches will be singing this around the place. It's something to think about, isn't it? And there are people I can hope that would say, I've never seen that. 
I sure wouldn't join you in singing that at all. And may I submit to you tonight that there are people that would never sing those words that do that very thing. And that is a concern of the psalmist as we're going to see tonight. God bless you. May be seated. Now, in this psalm, you'll find if you were to step back yourself, in fact, if you to I thought about asking you to read it this afternoon, and then I kind of forgot at one point, and I decided against it at another point. But if you've taken the time to read this psalm for yourself, and to give serious, what shall we say, contemplation to it, I think you would see that there is a twofold movement in the psalm. And you'll see this movement, in my estimation, I invite you to study it out for yourself, You'll see this movement about seven different times. And here it is. The first is, our attention is called to the wonderful works of God. I'll show you how that's mentioned here over and over again. How the wonderful works of God that He has done on behalf of His people, the nation of Israel, and in this account, primarily their deliverance from Egypt and the wilderness journey where God took care of them. Right, so, you see the wonderful works of God. The second movement is, and I'm putting the wonderful works of God up here. That's a high level. That's a good thing. Somebody say amen. And uh, the second movement is, I'm going to put it down here, there's sad response to the wonderful works of God. So, you have the wonderful works of God, amazing, and then you have the sad response of God's people to His wonderful works. Now, uh, you notice with me, right here in the first 11 verses, that he called attention, I pointed out as we read through, he called attention three times to the wonderful works of God, or to the works of God, and to the works and his wonders that he had shown. So you have three times that he calls attention to the wonderful works of God. But you'll notice there that in verse number 10, it says, but they kept not the covenant of the God and refused to walk in His law. And what the fathers had, can I have your attention on this, so important, what the fathers before them had done in the previous generation, they have done as well. And would still be many of them still doing that very same thing. How that they had seen and known of the wonderful works of God, but then had given a sad, sad response back to God in relation to those wonderful works. Now, uh, as I mentioned, these are primarily works having to do with the uh, deliverance from Egypt, in Egypt itself, when he showed the sign that Moses gave with the serpent, picked it up, the leprous hand, and then it became whole. And, and then how that uh, Moses then uh, appeared before Pharaoh and the ten plagues come, the deliverance from the land of Egypt when they were at the Red Sea and they were told uh, in their fear 
and their anxiety and their anger and frustration with Moses and with God. He said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord and the waters parted. You, you know how that goes. And he goes in there and they're without water and wonderful things happening and they go through and how God took care of them. In fact, if you'll look down in verse number 12, uh, let's see, look in verse number 13. He said, he divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made their waters to stand as in heap, and he led them with the cloud and claimed the rocks in verse number 15. He brought streams out of the rock in verse 16, verse 17. Look at this. And they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. All right? So then if you went to verse number about verse number 20, uh, verse 21, uh, 19, rather, they wondered, could he furnish the table in the wilderness? And then in verse number 20, he smote the rock, and, uh, and God's uh, provision was there for the people with water and bread. And uh, verse 22, because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. Verse 23, more works of God. Verse 32, for all this they sinned still and believed not. Verse 33 and on, more wonderful words of God. In verse 37, their heart was not right uh, in his steadfast and his covenant. All right, so basically, that's what you're going to see about seven different times as you go through the song, where it lists some of the wonderful words of God and then their response. Now, when you talk about their sad response, I want to get more specific about that because uh, the glaring sin of the people of Israel in that wilderness journey, and before that and beyond that, actually, but he's calling attention to that specifically. The glaring sin is their sad response to the wonderful works of God by, I showed you in verse 17, verse 22, verse 32, look at verse 37, their heart is not right with him. These are four times that basically their sin amounted to, are you listening? Unbelief. And also, I'm not going to turn to the passages or anything like that. I'm just saying that it is studied out in other places, like in the book of Numbers, where these things are given in more detail, and then the comments of others about these passages in Israel during this time, you'll see that uh, under the, uh, there's a big heading word for their response to God and the reason that a generation of people had to die and were not allowed to go into the promised land. A whole generation had to die. And that sin is called, somebody tell me, one word. You're afraid to speak. I know some of you know it. Unbelief. That's the commentary elsewhere. And it's, it's not, it's suggested here very strongly as well, but their sin was unbelief. So God showed them his mighty work, and he provided for them in all the miraculous ways. The plagues in Egypt, the deliverance of the Red Sea, the poison water turned sweet, and the no water, water coming out of a rock and flooding the dry places of the desert. The Amalekites coming up from behind and God taking care of them. Uh, excuse me, six days a week for 40 years, bread from heaven. I'm talking about a miracle from heaven every day, six days a week for 40 years. That, that's the miracle work of God. How he took care of their clothing, 
so that their garments did not wear out, the shoes on their feet did not wear out, and God provided for them and took care of them. The cloud, pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. I'm just talking about not to mention the fact that they went to the Mount Sinai and they actually heard the voice of God. And they heard God speak to Moses and God spoke to Moses so they would understand that Moses is his man and they still fought against Moses. I mean, all this is stuff. These are called the wonderful works of God. Now, if I'm out in the desert with my family, or in this wilderness place, and water comes out of a rock enough to feed three million, two to three million people, I'm going to call that wonderful. That's what I'm going to call it. These are the wonderful works of God. And if we have food and sustenance, but there's nothing growing out in that Sinai Peninsula that would sustain this kind of a group of people, and I go out and get bread for my family every day, I'm going to call that wonderful. What about you? See, the wonderful works of God, they are manifest all through this whole wilderness journey. And how did they respond to it? They sinned against Him by provoking Him. And in verse number 22, they did not believe in God nor trust in His salvation. In verse 32, they stand still and believe not for His wonderful words. In verse 37, their heart was not right with Him. So, listen to this. But God gave His wonderful words, high level, wonderful, wonderful things, and they responded, we don't believe you. Wow. And some knucklehead gets a hold of the Bible and says, uh, reads about how God deals with them and chasing and judgment and says, I don't like to read the Old Testament. It's God's a vindictive God there. Now look, one of the most amazing things in the uh, Bible in the Old Testament is the patience and the long-suffering of God. I mean, who could have blamed God if He would have done this and done that uh, a long time ago? But He continued to uh, provide for them and He continued to deal with them and they responded in unbelief. Now that's bad. Somebody say amen. That's bad. Unbelief is bad. Some of you are in no mood to say amen. I don't know what happened to you this afternoon or what. But I'm just saying that it's very, very bad that they uh, responded in unbelief. But the problem, as you go through this, is that that sin expanded. And in other words, I don't see here, I'm going to point out three things. But I don't see your three separate sins. I see that this one sin, it, it, it expanded so that it was not just unbelief. Now, the sin expanded beyond that. Now, somebody says, what are you talking about? All right, look down. In verse number 18, if you would. See, because verse 10 says, they uh, sinned yet against him and provoked him in the wilderness. Now, look at verse 18. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. You can read about that in number 17. They tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their, for their lust. So their sin expanded. What do you mean by that? Well, it wasn't just unbelief. In their unbelief, they tempted God. Right? Now, look down to verse number 41. Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. There it is again. Their unbelief in that they tempted God. Now look in verse 56. Yet they tempted and provoked the Most High God and kept not His testimonies. All right? 
So there you have it, three times. Now, come on, I'm sure you've been through stuff like this before, and it's been pointed out before, nothing new here. But if God says something one time, then we ought to pay attention to it, and we ought to learn from it, and He means what He says. But if in a passage like this, He calls attention to something three times, then it sort of makes you think that perhaps He wanted us to really understand what was taking place here, and maybe we ought to give some special attention to this. And so it says here that in their unbelief, it happened that in unbelieving, they went on to tempt God. Now, what does that mean, to tempt God? James said that uh, God does not tempt any man with evil, neither can God be tempted with evil. So what does it mean, they tempted God? Well, I think maybe uh, I'm going to use a couple of incidents to explain this, but uh, maybe the best thing we can do, uh, and the foremost thing we can do, is find when God was tempted. And when was he tempted? Well, you know, Jesus thought of not robbery to be equal to God. But made himself of no reputation, took up in, upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and came here. Somebody say amen. And that's what the scripture says, John chapter 1. He said, and the word was made place and dwelt among us. The word, God expressed. The word, God expressed. And the word was made place and dwelt among us. We beheld the glory, the glory to the only begotten of the Father. Now, one thing we know about when God became man and walked among us, we know that eventually, when he was about 30 years of age, he went to where John the Baptist was baptizing, and that's when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They baptized him, and a voice from God came with his approval upon the baptism of Jesus that had been just taken place. And then the scripture says that after he was baptized, he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be what? Tempted of the devil. So Jesus was led by the Spirit of God. So he went out into the wilderness, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he was tempted of the devil. And in his physical weakness, having not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, the devil comes to him and says, If thou be, now that makes me mad, right? If thou be the Son of God. I'm not mad at you, so quit looking at me like that. I'm just saying. Uh, the, the arrogance of, of, of the adversary, the devil. And the devil comes and says, If thou be the Son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Now the Bible says that he was unhungered. And I'm going to say to you on the authority of the Bible that Jesus would have no trouble turning these stones into bread or whatever he decided to turn them into. He could turn them into sons of Abraham if he wanted to. Because remember, he said one time, if these don't cry, if these don't cry, Hosanna, and give him praise that even these rocks shall cry out. And so I'm just saying that the, the devil said, if thou be the Son of God, then you turn these stones into bread. Then uh, and the second temptation was he took him to a high place. Some supernatural is going on here. And he took him into this incredibly high place and showed him the nations of the world and the nations of the known world. And where uh, he took him, he said, if you will bow down and worship me, then I'll give you all these nations and the glory of them, as though they were his to give. 
the devil. And he said, if you're the Son of God, then you'll bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all these kingdoms. And apparently he was making an offer to withdraw himself, and Jesus would rule, and he would be recognized as the Messiah. And the third thing he did is take him to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And at the pinnacle of the temple, he said, if thou be the Son of God, then cast yourself, read this in Luke 4, Matthew 4, and if you're the Son of God, then cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. And it's already written concerning thee that uh, he's uh, given his angels charge concerning thee, lest at any time thou dice thy foot against the stone. And so he said, you'll cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, you'll go to the ground unharmed, and the people will see that and recognize you as the Son of God. That was the threefold temptation. Food, worship, and cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Now, definitely, we know how Jesus answered, don't we? Now, the first one, he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The disciples would learn later that Jesus had meat to eat that they knew not of. And so he said to the devil, answered him with the word of God, it is written, thou shalt not live by bread alone. And as far as the worship is concerned, he answered and said, It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And concerning the pinnacle of the temple, he said, It is written, Ye shall not tempt the Lord thy God, and told him to get up. And the devil departed from him for a season. And so in all of those matters, Jesus was, are you listening? God made manifest in the place, was tempted of the devil. Now, just stop and think what was going on there, really. Here's what was taking place. The devil was actually saying to Jesus, Now, I will determine the criteria by which you should be known as the Messiah. I will determine the conditions that will make you known as the Messiah. Turn these stones to bread, it ought to work. Now that worship man have the authority over all these lands, they'll know you have authority. And place yourself at the pinnacle of the temple, and not one bone shall be broken, lest thou dice thy foot against the stone. And once you do that, and all the people that are gathered around there, the word will spread. You'll be known as the Messiah. And so what he's basically saying is, I determine the conditions by which you should be recognized by the people as the anointed one, as the Messiah. And Jesus' basic answer to him was, Oh, no, you don't. You do not determine the conditions by which I'll be known as the Messiah. My Father determines those conditions, and my Father will let it be known that I am the Messiah in His time and in His way. Get out of here. And that was Jesus' answer. And that's called the temptation of Jesus. God made manifest in the place. God expressed, came here, and was tempted of the devil. The devil said, I will determine the means by which you should be known as the Messiah. Now, that's one. There's another place where the Bible is very clear about this matter of tempting God. Now, um, 
It's found, we're not going to turn there, I'll just tell a story we can do this very fast, familiar to many of you, and even if it's not, I think you can get the point. Uh, but it happened over in the book of Numbers in chapter 20 and 21. Now, chapter 21, 5 is a verse you'll probably recognize. And the people was much discouraged because of the way. And they spoke against Moses and against God, and they spoke of returning back to Egypt. They wanted to get rid of Moses. They wanted to go back and teach him and go back to the land of Egypt. And here's what the Bible says. And the people was much discouraged because of the way. Sort of like great multitudes. It discouraged this big, much discouraged this big. I'm talking about these people were discouraged. And why were they discouraged? Well, they were discouraged because of the way. Now, I've heard all kinds of terms about it, but what I really want to know is, not how do people get discouraged and what psychological and economic and geopolitical problems in the world cause people to be discouraged today. That's not what I'm interested in. I want to know how those people get discouraged in that account. They were much discouraged because what? Well, all you got to do is see the way, the way, the way things were when it led up to that verse. See? So if you back up into chapter 20 and into chapter 21, watch this, you can get it. Uh, there are four simple things that happen that discourage them in the way. The way things work. Alright? So the first thing that happened is they ran out of water for the third time, as far as the record is concerned, the third time in the, in the, in the wilderness journey. Now, never mind, they're about year 38, 39 by now. They ran out of water. Ideally, when they ran out of water, wouldn't it have been nice if they just said, wow, we've been out of water twice before, and God came through. I wonder what he's going to do this time. Because, you know, they moan around, and in their discouragement, they say, he's got us out here to kill us in the wilderness, and I want to answer them. If God wanted to kill you in the wilderness, it would not take 39 years. Somebody help me, please. And so they are that discouraged that they are blaming God and want to destroy them in the wilderness. And so there was no one. And that's when Moses got upset because God told him, go speak to the rock. Moses commanded the people, must God give you water out of a rock, you rebels. And he took the rock and hit the rock twice. And you know what happened to Moses then? He was forbidden to go into the land. And Joshua, he thought, from the top of the mountain, but he did not get to go into the land. And so, that, that's, that's one of the issues they faced. They didn't have water when they wanted it, how they wanted it. And rather than saying, God has done this before, He'll do it again. No, sir. They're kicking the dirt mad. They are so angry with God and Moses, they want to go back. That's one thing. Here's the other thing that happened. They were supposed to get positioned so they might go into the promised land. Well, where they were around Cadiz Barnea, they're going to go through the land of the Edomites and get over there by the, uh, on, on the east side of the Jordan River, and then at the right time, we cross over into the Promised Land. So they go to the Edomites, who are their cousins. Everybody with me here? Cousins. Descendants of Esau. Jacob Esau. Twin brothers. Amen. And so they're cousins. So they go to their cousins and say, Hey, cousins, we want to pass through your land to go get positions. And the Edomites respond. What? You tried, you got a war. No way you're passing through this land. And now, they had a threat of war with the Edomites. 
Well, they didn't actually go to war, but that meant that when they did make the move, it was an inconvenience for them to have to go around uh, the Edomites to get position. And so they were hostile towards the Edomites. And if you read what the prophets say about the coming judgment, or it was coming then, at the time of the prophets, the coming judgment of the Edomites, you'll see the Edomites were very faithful, very haughty, very high-minded people. They were despicable people. And the Jews hated them. And they were hated by the Jews. And they wouldn't let them pass through the land. So two things. So number one, you've got no water. Number two, you've got the Edomites that are standing in your way. You should get some cooperation from them, shouldn't you? They're our cousins. Oh, no. No. You've got to come through here and you've got to work. Third thing that happened is this. Miriam dies. Moses' sister, Aaron dies. You've got two deaths that rocked the nation there. And how much it affected them that Miriam died, I don't know. It just doesn't say just that she died. But when Aaron died, well, this man was very important in their uh, journey and their departure from Egypt. He was a spokesman for Moses, and he's the one, you know, that they looked to, like Moses up in the out 40 days. We don't know what's become of him. Aaron, why don't you do this? And that's when Aaron said the golden calf jumped out of the fire, which he made. But anyway, he was a very important person. I, I can't get off on that. He's a very significant, very important person. And so, obviously, he was. And, and Aaron died. I mean, when you go to the Mount Sinai, uh, there in the, uh, the, first of the first year of their journey, you go to the Mount Sinai and you see the order of the priesthood and everything. Well, Aaron was the head of the, of the uh, ironic priesthood. So, I mean, he was a very, very significant individual. He's gone. So now you've got no water. And then you've got a Sort of war with the Edomites should never happen to those people. That would have been the attitude of the Jews. Scuzzy, is that a bad word? I don't know. What to, uh, but anyway, it's bad enough. So, scuzzy people. And then you got the death of Aaron and Miriam. So, you got those three things. See how things are kind of stacking up? You probably never had it in your life where you wonder what's next. You probably never experienced that, have you? Where things kind of go south? To where you're kind of waking up and every day, what's going to happen this week? What's going to happen this year? What else can happen? You know, you've been through those times, apparently. Well, they were going through that right now. Because when chapter 21 begins, then they are confronted with Arab the Canaanite. He comes and declares war with them, and they fight a war with Arab the Canaanite. Now, they won the war. You can read it in chapter 21. They won the war, but still, who wants to go to war? I mean, war is not glamorous, it is not a beautiful thing, it is an ugly thing, it is a horrible thing, and they were not necessarily in this transition time of being through the wilderness and on their way to the promised land. They were primarily known as warriors and soldiers, and they read the Canaanite and sacrificed against them. So now, I, I have an imagination, I encourage you to have one when you think about it. I'm going to go visit the camp and see what's going on. Because these people are much discouraged. And I take uh, Brother Jacob with me. I say, come on, Brother Jacob, go with me. Let's go talk to these people and see what's going on. And about two miles from the camp, you can hear this undertone, this sound. I say to Jacob, stop talking for just a minute, will you please? And so, I say to him, listen to that. And, and while we're sitting there, we can hear coming from the camp. 
and he's carrying across the desert there. Jacob says, what is that? I said, well, I don't know. Let's get a little closer, man. It's a terrible sound, isn't it? And it's a terrible thing. We get there and we can see this is a sound of utter discontent. Utter, absolute discontent. Uh, a sound of displeasure. This, uh, murmur is an onomatopoeia. It simply means that you define the word by the sound of the word. And so that this word is it is murmuring, and you take murmur, 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 and let everybody start saying it. And it's negative. Nobody, nobody ever says, you know, those people are discouraged and they complain about everything. I just love being around them. Nobody ever says that. In fact, if there are people that way that you know are that way, you maybe would like to help them, but as far as just hanging out, no. Why? Because they're so negative. Not thinking negative, that's not the way you preach or say it. But they're so very negative. And so you, you, don't, you don't appreciate that. And so here And we catch somebody outside the camp, maybe a century or something, and say, man, oh man, it sounds like there's a lot of discontent there. And he looks at us and says, well, what do you think? Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, what's all this about? He said, the way things are. These people are discontented and they're much discouraged and they're in this condition just because of the way things are. What do you mean the way things are? All right, you got a minute? Well, first of all, we had no water. Secondly, we had to deal with the Edomites who wouldn't let us pass through the land. Thirdly, we had Ellen and Miriam die. We had grief and sorrow for 30 days over the death of Aaron, and then fourthly, we had Arad the Canaanite, and this happened one, two, three, four, bang, 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 bang. We got hit with this thing, and you wonder why we're discouraged and why the discontent? That's why. So, what are you going to do about that? We're trying to get rid of Moses right now. We're ready to predict this whole expedition. Even though they were getting ready to position themselves to go into the promised land, they were ready to go from there back to Egypt. That's how bad it was. Uh, so you're that discouraged. I mentioned something this morning about the blinded eyes and the deaf ears not being a bless your heart moment. Neither is this kind of discouragement. I bless your heart, Because God never looked down upon His discouraged people, much discouraged because of the way. God did not look down upon those discouraged people and say, Oh, bless your heart, and gather them together for a group of Did He? No. You know what He did? Let me give you a commentary. I love it when people say, don't give me commentaries, just give me the Bible. Okay, lay low, please. Pause the commentator. Okay? So here's the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, 9. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were bitten of the serpents, and much people died. So here's God's response to their discouragement. Far from bless your heart, 
He sent serpents among them to bite them, and they died or began to die. And somebody says, I just don't think discouragement is a sin. Well, when the snake showed up, the first thing the people said was, verse 6, we have sinned. And they confessed their sin, right there. <laughs> so I guess I won that argument right there pretty good. And what did Paul say? Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted whom? God. He's saying to the Corinthian church, a very carnal and difficult church. Yes or no? It's a very carnal and difficult church. And Paul is saying to the church of Corinth, now don't you make the mistake they made back there in the wilderness, and they said, and, and don't you make the mistake of tempting Christ like they tempted God. Now, how did they tempt God? Remember how the devil tempted Jesus? Here are the conditions you should be known as the Son of God, as the Messiah. You know what the people were doing with God here in the wilderness? God, here are the conditions by which we will receive you, believe you as God. What are those conditions? Well, let's just start with this. Give us water when and how we want it, okay? And another thing is um, that Edomites. I mean, why did we have to bypass the land of Edomites to go through all? And since we haven't been through enough in the past 40, 39 years, now we've got to go around the land of the Edomites and just inconvenience ourselves even more to get position to go in. Why don't you just pull a reenactment of Sodom and Gomorrah and take care of the Edomites? God is able to do that. And don't think the Israelites would not have rejoiced in that. They would have rejoiced in that because of the utter disdain that the Edomites and the Israelites had for one another. And so, yeah, okay, but God, if you would do that. And second, thirdly, what about, God, you let us tell you when would be a good time for people to die? Sorry, said, oh, they're not saying that. Well, they're ready to go back and get rid of Moses and go back to the land of Egypt because Aaron and Miriam died. So what do you think they're saying? From now on, God, you let us tell you when it would be a good time. Because this is not a good time. We want to get through enough stuff. And so, basically, they're telling God how to be God. This isn't going over so good, but I, I, I believe I'm still right on. I'm going to try it over here. I don't know about people. They, basically, what they're trying to do is tell God how to be God. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Do you hear that? Okay. And and on, on top of that, um, uh, what about those, um, you know, not just the but the, uh, the Canaanites. When they were going to possess their land, what are they, how are they going to possess the land? They're going to go to war, and many of the Canaanites are going to die. All right, so why should we go through that? When the Canaanites came out and declared war, why didn't you do the Sodom and Gomorrah thing again and rain fire and brimstone down, destroy them with the fire of God from heaven, and we wouldn't have to go through this war? So basically what they were doing is exactly what Satan did with Jesus Christ. They were saying to God, if you would meet our conditions, then we would believe you, and we would follow you. And what they were doing was tempting God, saying, we will become the conditions by which he is to be known as God. 
but there's a third part where this thing is pending. But back in verse 41, I want to show you this. Closely related, but I'm just saying, I, I don't know any other way to say it than that it's expansion of this kingdom. I don't even know if that's theologically right, but anyway, I'm doing the preaching, so that's how it is. Look down, look down here in verse number uh, 41. Yea, they turned back and tempted God. So unbelief turned into tempting God and limited the Holy One of Israel. And that's the one that really stuck me for the time. Question. The Holy One of Israel is called in the Bible, Isaiah 57, the high and lofty one. The one who inhabits eternity. The one, uh, Psalm 113, I think I used that Psalm the last time that I was here, the 113th Psalm, where God is so high above His creation that He must humble Himself to behold what He has made. The high and lofty God. Read it, 113th Psalm. He's high above the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Isaiah, He inhabits eternity. He dwells in the high and holy place, and His name is holy. That's God. Question. How do you limit the infinite, eternal one? How do you do that? How do you limit the Almighty so I studied out this limit thing. And I had to work pretty hard on this word, you know, the resources. I, I don't know, you can tell I still struggle with English, let alone Hebrew and all that other stuff. So I'm not a master of the languages, but I can get some help. And I got some help and start digging into this word and the entomology of this word that we had limited and where it came from and the ancient usage before it was used here in this, uh, in this uh, passage in the Psalms. And so I got to studying this word out. It happens to be a very interesting word. And the word limit, to limit, means to make a mark or to draw a line. To make a mark. My dad carpentered. He's a farmer. He carpentered in the winter quite a bit. And I'd go with my dad. He'd put out, a, let's say, a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood or a 2 by 12 or something like that. He's got his table saw there and he's going to cut it. And he'll take the old chalk box and he'll put it down here. He's got it marked here and marked at the other end. And he'll say, okay, son, I'll take this down here and I'll go put it on there. And when he looked like to him that everything is exactly like it ought to be, he'd say, now strike the line. And I'd reach out there and I'd pull that line up and there'd be this perfect line right there. And that's where he would stop. Right there. Strike a mark to make a mark. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I just don't know what it has to do with anything. <laughs> And then I got to study a little more, and I found out that it's more than just making a mark that can be brushed away or be worn off. To, to make a mark means to do it by invention, to, to engrave, or to make an invention. And uh, as I thought about that, I thought that's very interesting too, but I'm, I'm not sure exactly what to do with it. What does that mean? They are, uh, they are limiting the Holy One of Israel. I mean, you know, you go down to the, to the um, uh, Alamo, and it was a general crevice that drew the line in the dirt there in the Alamo and said, if you're going to be with us, you come over on this side of the line. If you're not, then you need to leave. But if you come on this side of the line, you're probably going to die. That's one of the, in our history, one of the greatest marks drawn in the ground. 
and, and, he, and he engraved it in the ground. Right there. And then, I hope I don't throw anybody away, uh, throw anybody off here thinking so deep. But I thought of my days playing marbles. Told you it was deep. Some of you are marbles. Anybody here play marbles like I used to as a kid? Don't you? Yeah. Kids nowadays, they carry these electronic things around. And I said, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. I'm going to keep the stuff. You know what I mean? I'm going to make fun of them and everything. I said, beat you. Yeah, well, I could beat you at marbles, too. <laughs> what? You don't have any idea what I'm talking about. Well, see, you know, I had brothers uh, eight and ten years older, and they taught me quite a bit of stuff as a kid. So I had some advantages and some of the things I participated in because of the help of my older brothers. Didn't mean I was great at anything, but still, I knew how to play marbles. You go out in the playground. I was about probably ten years old, eleven. Somewhere in there, you go out in the playground. You find this place where there's no grass, and you go out there, and everybody have their marbles. And you'd go out there, and you'd take a stick, or if it was soft enough, you'd take it there, and you'd draw this big circle. And you make a boundary right there. And it is the limit for this game. Okay, now let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, you put all the marbles inside. So if every guy had ten marbles, say five of us going to play, so you put all the marbles inside. Then you draw names or however it works, and the first guy gets to shoot, and then everybody takes their turn going around. And uh, you keep shooting, and you keep shooting. You have a special marble that you shoot with, and it has to be the right size. If it's too big or like a, um, a steel ball bearing or something, you can, get, you can get beat up for trying to shoot like that. And you got to shoot from behind the line. If while you think everybody's watching, you reach over and move a marble closer that you're going after, you could, you could be executed for that, too. And then, uh, so if you uh, try to cheat and cross the line to get closer to the marble, you're out of the game for that, too. I mean, it, that line means everything. And then you just keep shooting until all the marbles are out. When you shoot a marble out, that's your marble. And then when you're done, you count and see all 50 marbles are out of the circle. Whoever has the most marbles gets everybody's marbles. They win all the marbles. Yep. And I won. And I was pretty happy about that. Because marbles are a big deal. They came in cereal boxes and all kinds of stuff. You don't get it? <laughs> Sorry. But they came in these cereal boxes. Oh, yeah. I, man, I love, I love marbles. I love it. Collector marbles. I went home that day. I was so happy. And I walked in the kitchen to my mom and my sister. And I said, look here. Mom says, what do you got there? Sam? And I said, my marbles. Well, you don't have that many marbles, do you? I said, I do now. <laughs> my mom said, what do you mean you do now? I said, we played for peaks, and I won these marbles today. And my mother says, no more words. She grabs them out of my hand. And then she does say, we don't gamble in the past. So my mother ended my professional marble career. <laughs> now, here's the point I'm trying to make. I wonder if some people haven't committed to follow God and made a circle that he must work in. And as long as he's working in that circle, they're good. But if he won't do what they want him to, they will turn back. Because that's not what I signed up for. 
That's not what I agreed to. And what you're saying is, from the day I said I would follow Jesus, or from the day I said I surrendered myself to God, I had limitations there that as long as God worked within this, but if He called me to do something with my life other than what my dreams and my ambitions were to do with my life, then I will have to abandon my devotion to Him to pursue my dreams and my ambitions. So you can't say no turning back, no turning back, because if God won't do what you want Him to, you will turn back. I went to youth camp, and, and uh, I'll share the stories of it. It's, it's funny to me, but it's not important to everybody else. But I remember at youth camp, I got right with God. I mean, I, I wasn't right with God when I went. I was just about 30, 16 years old, and I was out of sorts with everybody. And I went to youth camp, and man, the preacher preached on Wednesday night, and I got my heart right with God. And man, I was so I felt so good. Went home. My dad had plowing to do, and I got on the tractor, and I'd plow all night long, he'd plow the day, and I'd plow at night. I remember standing on that tractor seat. This isn't according to safety standards, but nonetheless, I'd stand on the tractor seat and get the old tractor in the furrow, and it'd just be going down there for about a half a mile in that field, and you, you, could, you could set that wheel in the furrow, and I'd get up on the tractor seat and just preach and sing, and I don't know how my theology was any good, but I was loud. I guarantee I stirred up all the jackrabbits everywhere around there in Coyote, and I was preaching, and I'd sing the songs of youth camp, and my heart was so full, so full. And about three weeks after camp, I'm sitting in church on a Sunday night, and our pastor in our church that it wasn't that old at that time, and probably 40 people sitting there, and our pastor preaching the Word of God. And I remember sitting, let's say it was a, a center aisle. So I, let's say this is the center aisle, I'm sitting right here, and I'm sitting just behind you right about there. And I'm sitting there, and as sure as my name is Sam Davison, our preacher was preaching, and God was dealing with my heart and says, Preach. That's your life. That's what I have for you. And I remember sitting there saying, Oh, no, no, no. No, oh, I meant to get right. I meant to do right. I mean, I'm going to go to school and do the right thing, and I'm going to be a testimony and be a witness. Absolutely. I'm going to do that. I've got friends I'd like to bring to church, and we're having a revival in the fall. I'm going to try to fill up a few full of them and all of that kind of thing. I want to do that, but not that. The Spirit of God spoke to my heart. You don't tell me. You surrendered to me. I tell you. And so, I didn't realize it, but I meant I'll follow God according to certain boundaries, imaginary boundaries that I didn't even know I had until he started asking me to do things I wasn't ready to do. Everybody listen to this? I'm just going to tell you right now that if we think it's a small thing to put limits on the holy God, let's put it another way. On Jesus Christ, our let's see what's another word to add to his name. Jesus Christ, somebody help me here. Jesus Christ, our Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Lord. Or something like your preach about Lordship salvation. Oh hush. Jesus is who He is. He is Lord, and when He saved you and paid for your sins, 
and brought you to himself. His name is Lord, as sure as it is Jesus. I said his name is Lord, as sure as it is Christ, and he means to be the Lord of your life and the Lord of my life. Now, if you've got some kind of circle drawn, I suggest you do what I realize I have to do from time to time, and make sure I erase that thing, and I mean erase it in a hurry. You do not draw lines and try to make God work within your plan. He is Lord, you are not. He is Lord, you are not. He is Lord, I am not. Who do we think we are? Are you disgusted with the arrogance of the adversary, the devil? I am. Are you disgusted with the haughtiness of the people of Israel who blamed the God whose mighty, wonderful works they saw day by day by day by day? Come on, friends. Day by day. Are you disgusted with their haughtiness and their arrogance? And who do we think we are, the Lord? Oh, young man. This is a bit of issue. What are you going to do with your life? How many years? 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 There it is. Wow. Have you considered that God might want you to preach or be in ministry? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, not really. Not at all. Well, look, I don't want the responsibility of calling anybody. Do you hear what I said? I don't want the responsibility to try to call anybody into the ministry. But I think every parent, and I think every child raised in a godly home, ought to allow that he has first claim on my life. And there's not a higher calling than the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all the world. And there's no higher level of work than local New Testament church life. That is the organism Jesus left on this earth to do his work. You know, the greatest things going on on planet Earth aren't being done in the Pentagon. They're certainly not being done in the Oval Office. I'm just telling you, they're not being done in the halls of Congress. The greatest thing that's going on from the economy of God and the lens of the Scripture is the work of a New Testament church whose work it is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, baptize the believers, and make disciples out of those that get saved. And if you don't believe that, then you ought to read the last words we have from Jesus from heaven, and it's all to and about His church. I'm not talking about anything universal or invisible. I'm talking about those churches that were in Ephesus and in and, uh, Smyrna and in Pergamos, and in and, uh, Sardis, and in Thyatira, and in Philadelphia, and in Laodicea. Well, those churches don't even exist anymore. Well, right. And the message wasn't just to those seven churches, but they were to those churches to be understood for all the churches. May you stand that God can't have your life? I've got a granddaughter, bless her heart. First daughter, she's our first one. She's now 34 years old. Forever, I can't believe it. We've got 10 granddaughters and one grandson. But we do have three great grandsons. That's pretty neat, but we don't get to much. But anyway, and our, our granddaughter said, well, I'm going to go to Heartland Baptist Bible College where he works with stuff, stuff or something. So, I'm going to go to Bible College, but I'm not marrying a preacher. I'll tell you that, Grandpa. I will not marry a preacher, told her folks. I'll go, because I know you want me to go. But I will not marry a preacher. Attitude about it. 
Got it from my wife's side of the family. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I, well, I'm not going to marry a preacher. Well, who said anything about you marrying a preacher? Well, I'm just telling you right now. So her husband's been a pastor you know, for the last five years. He's doing a wonderful work and she's loving every minute of it. I'm just telling you, she is all in 100%. I'm just saying to you, young lady, and I'm saying to you, young man, and I'm saying to you, young married man, I'm saying to anybody anywhere of any age, He's Lord. And, and if, if the song that I sang repulses you, but if he won't do what I want him to, I will turn back. If you don't like that, you sure enough have not to do it. Amen. Shame on you for making me amen myself. If you don't like the words to that song, you sure have not to practice that in your life. Nor should I. He's Lord. And if all you know is that you're saved, you're on the receiving end of the wonderful works of God. Wonderful works of God. There's not a greater work or miracle on planet Earth than the salvation of a lost soul. And before you got saved, you were one heartbeat from hell. The day I got saved, I was just a six-year-old kid. You know what happened? My pastor preached on hell two Sundays in a row. And for the first time in my life, I not only realized, I mean, I was raised in church who read the Bible in the morning and at night and prayed my mother and prayed half the night if my dad didn't stop her. And I'm just saying, we had these family prayer times and all these kind of things. I mean, I knew. But I'm just saying, I, for the first time in my life, I realized not only is there a hell, that's where I'm going as I am. Boy, that's a new line on things. And the second Sunday, the preacher preached what Jesus did to keep boys like me from going to that awful place called hell. And I got saved. Was, I still remember it. Believe it or not, but yes, I do. Seventy years ago. And I remember it's like, wow. I hadn't blasted or killed anybody. I might have hit my sisters, but it was self-defense. Really, I was And so I wouldn't have this big list of horrendous sins that I was guilty of, but I knew that I was a condemned person. Till Jesus forgave me of all my sins. I saw at that age the wonderful works of God. And so did you, do I say? If that's all we know, is that He saved us from our sins. All we have is eternal life. Don't get too excited about anything. All we have is eternal life. You're just going to live as long as God. You know, you can't go to hell. Your sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ. You're redeemed. Sanctified, justified, glorified. That's what the Bible says. It's done. It's done. And we look at them and say, God's work was amazing. And they didn't believe. And they tempted him. And they just put limits on the high and lofty God. What are they thinking of? Well, you look at your life. And if you see it's going on to any degree, to any degree, I said to any degree, whether it would look this big to you or whether it would look this big to you, if you're doing it to any degree, time to break those lines and say, you don't make any marks and say God's got to work within that mark. He is God. Jesus is 
Lord. No turning back. No turning back. Which one are you going to sing? 